With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Morgan St. James, and this is Writer's Tricks of the Trade. Today, Eric James Miller and I are sharing tips and techniques for drawing pictures with words. We've had a little bit of experience ourselves. I'm the author of 14 books. Eric has two books, I believe, and one more in work. And we have gone through the drill. We've done the drawing with pictures, and now we're going to share some things with you. You can draw pictures with words by using artful rhythmic prose. That's one of the key elements in fiction writing. The trick is to make it simple and direct. This technique of using words to trigger a mental image is a variation of show and don't tell. And if you use language that's too sophisticated, complex, or gimmicky, or long blocks of flat narrative, sometimes called a laundry list, it often triggers inattention rather than creating a visual experience. So before you protest that extensive description draws the reader deeper into the story, the reality is that it can work the other way, and here's why. Long, sometimes dull passages actually break the action. They literally freeze the characters in place during a boring dissertation. Yeah, that's right. Morgan, and um, I think a great example of that is something that the Writers of Southern Nevada has started doing this year. Um, it's a local literary organization here in Southern California, and, and we started this, this series earlier this year called Painted Stories, where we have authors get up and read from their work as an artist paints in front of the live audience based on their words. And I think it really demonstrably demonstrates, if you don't mind <laughs> putting it that way, <laughs> how, how words... The grammar girl is after you, Eric. <laughs> I know. Demonstrable. It's tough to say as it is um, <laughs> right, but uh, the scene, for the authors that have participated in the, in the, in the event, um, they've been very flattered that an artist can literally take their words, listen to their words, and paint a picture based on those words. And, and the audience is equally thrilled because as the author is reading, they're putting together the images in their mind. And when they get to see an artist doing exactly that same thing, turning a blank canvas into a work of art right in front of their eyes, I think this point that Morgan is, is making, drawing pictures with words, literally comes, comes to life. Um, we had a reader that uh, was just talking about taking a walk with his dog in the desert in the evening. Sounds like a very mundane topic, but it was actually evocative, and the artist had a lot of fun with it. He he painted the clouds and the, the, the melancholy that the man, that the narrator was feeling about his ex-wife and everything came through in the painting. 
And um, the same with we had a, a guy who was reading a memoir from uh, his, his days in the Peace Corps in um, Thailand and, and about an event that happened there. And, and just the same thing. It just it came to it was a farming community. It started out this farming community, and the story just grew and grew. And it, so I think, I think as an author, we need to ask ourselves, how do I know when I've created a picture. It's your job to use several elements of the scene to draw a word picture that transforms an otherwise so what scene into one bursting with life. But like Morgan just said, you can't freeze the characters in place during that boring dissertation. And uh, what that means in a nutshell is to create an environment in the reader's mind so that they can see clearly that they're applying their own spin instead of, instead of you giving them a cardboard cutout. Um, and as you're writing, you should be able to see it clearly too. You should use sounds and aromas and climate. You know, they say never talk about the weather, but uh, you know, it was a dark and stormy night is a classic <laughs> <laughs> opening line that you know pulls everybody in. Yeah, um, but the weather does draw mood. Oh, absolutely. I, 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 we could, we could have a long, I, I think, um, I think some of the quote writing doctors that say you should never talk about climate or weather are wrong because you're absolutely right, Morgan. A, a, if, if you're setting a story here in Southern California, the desert. You're not in Southern California, my dear. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. In, in Southern Nevada, you're, you're, um, you're, I'm, you're, you have to talk about the Mojave and what it's like to live in the Mojave Desert as opposed to when you're living in Southern California, the ocean and the Pacific and the moods and the storms. I mean, that all impacts your characters and your stories. And the same, you know, if you're in Colorado or you're in, you know, the fjords of Norway, weather <laughs> and place are, are, there's a lot of parallels that can go along with the emotions that your characters are feeling. And we have some examples of that coming up. Because each reader is going, going to create their own picture in their mind, so you literally only need those brushstrokes of, of like the artists that we have in our Painted Stories st series. They have 15 minutes to paint a picture, and they do it. They get it done because the, the writing is that evocative. Uh, yeah, well, that's it. I want to in interject something there, Eric. I know I'm stepping on your toes, uh, but <laughs> but the writer has to be able to draw those things through the words they use, and that's kind of what we're talking about today, absolutely. so that that artist does develop a picture in their minds. And just like the artist develops the picture, so does the reader. Exactly. And the result is the readers are so completely drawn into the realm of the story that you've created, they read on and on and on. They're determined to continue until their eyelids droop and their heads sag because they're, you know, they're staying up till 2 and 3 o'clock in the morning reading your writing <laughs> because it's that evocative. And when that happens, that, that forces them to, to go on and to tell your, their friends, why are you so tired? today, Bethany. Oh, because I was up all night reading Morgan's latest story and, and it, I just couldn't put it down. Um, that the, the picture has to be clear in the reader's mind and that's your job as an author 
Yeah, you're so right, Eric. You know, I can think of many authors with the skill to do that, right from the A-list authors down to small press and self-published authors. And it is a learned skill. And yes, when I'm reading something that's beautifully written with word pictures, it draws me in like a magnet. I have to say, though, that if I'm reading in bed, there is an advantage to reading those stories I can't put down either on my phone or my tab three. And that's because if I finally do succumb and drift off, when the device falls, it isn't apt to break my nose like a hardcover book when it drops. <laughs> hey, I've had three broken noses. That's enough for me. <laughs> my, the surgeon told me I couldn't come back anymore, that I'd used up my whole franchise. <laughs> okay, so now we have the tools that you mentioned. And that in your toolbox, you've got the sounds. You've got aromas. Climate as it might affect the picture that you're drawing. In other words, not like the dark and stormy night that you mentioned, but how various aspects of the climate might be affecting the character and what's going on. And then you have the emotions, and that's a big one. So the question is, how do we put them to the best use? Should you use everything in this powerful arsenal? Or do you decide what fits the situation? There's also the consideration of how to determine when to draw a word picture and when to keep it a little less graphic. You know, like anything else, overuse will defeat the purpose. And I just want to mention now that you will also find a worksheet that's going to be put up on http writerstricksofthetraderadio.blogspot.com the worksheet comes from the Writers of the Trade book, and it is an exercise you can use to gauge how you're drawing your word pictures. Oh, neat. I'm going to have to check that out. Yep, um, it's not up a, yet, but it will be. Well, right. <laughs> um, but that's a good point. The less is more principle can definitely be put into action when you're writing. Uh, Robert Browning said less is more in his poem of the same name, written in 1855, and two famous architects, uh, Mies van der Rohe and, and Buckminster, Buckminster Fuller, said it of their simplicity of design, and, and you know, of course, Frank Lloyd Wright did too. He was all about the lines and 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 matching the lines to to the horizon, so that your eyes were drawn where he wanted you to your eyes to be drawn to, and and the trick is to strike a balance with that. A little too much of it, and it sounds overblown and unrealistic. And perhaps, you know, this idea of a word picture is, for some people, so full of unnecessary adjectives that the reader has no real feeling for the mood or character that the author is trying to create. You don't want to do that. But instead, you don't want to overwhelm your reader with a string of words, but you want to pull them in and paint that picture for them. You got to be careful not to miss the mark when drawing a verbal picture that you should have grabbed the reader um, because remember pacing is everything. Don't stall your narrative or undermine the tension slash imperative you're trying to build for your characters with too much clever or pretty language. Keep your story moving. That's your number one rule. And remember Tolkien painted a rich vivid world of elfin waterfalls and creepy forests, while his characters kept putting one foot in, in front of the other and stayed on their quests. 
So he was constantly telling his story and moving his characters along, both physically and emotionally, through this world that he created. He didn't spend 20 chapters painting the world and then putting his characters in it. He <laughs> discovered the world as you were trudging along and getting closer and closer to your characters. And you can do this, too, if you simply paint your world one brushstroke at a time on the page. Excellent advice. You know, I know that you're going to discuss a a passage from The Bourne Legacy by Robert Ludlum because Ludlum was so skilled in doing this. I mean, his word pictures were spot on. And I'm going to set the scene for you, okay? In this particular scene, Ludlum is trapped in a refrigerated truck that's speeding down the highway. And he's trying to figure out how to escape. And he could have just said Bourne was cold and knew he had to escape when he decided to climb through the grate. So what did he do instead, Eric? Well, like you just summarized, that tells the reader what happened, but little else. But instead, the way Ludlum did it with with Bourne in this situation, he used two graphic paragraphs to make you feel Bourne's tension, to make you feel like you were there sharing his his peril. And it gave a sense also of what kind of person Bourne is. He placed us in that space, in that refrigerated truck, and and we were there with him when he had to navigate and draw the reader into sharing his character's sense of freedom when he succeeded in in escaping. And in just My God, times, Eric, all of that and all right. of that in two, just a few paragraphs? That's right. And How did he do that? Well, instead of simply saying he was cold, the passage describes Bourne as shivering, chilled through and through, imprisoned in a moving refrigerated truck. The tension builds and builds as he reaches the refrigeration vent at the top of the truck by climbing over the crates that were left in it. He manages to push it open and light flows into the truck's interior, his eyes, you know, it hits his eyes. It's the body senses that he's feeling from the warmth, from the cold to the warmth. And as he begins his escape, we get a sense of what he's really up against because we're feeling it with him in all of those, what he's touching, the temperature on his skin, the light in his eyes, the darkness in his eyes, that, those juxtapositions. So when he squeezes himself into that aperture, wriggling from side to side, my God, he ends up getting stuck. Now the oh, reader no. is fully engaged. Yeah, he's like, oh, my God, this truck is barreling down the highway, and here's this guy is trying to escape out the back, and he's stuck out the top little portal. How can he possibly propel himself out? The word picture Ludlum has drawn for us there keeps that tension as keen as the edge of a knife. And you can picture that truck speeding ahead while the clock is ticking and Bourne is stuck in the vent. People see him, str- you know, other people on the road see him struggling to get his head through the opening. I mean, the imagery in this sentence was masterful, in my opinion. It gives you an overall picture of what he sees. He blinked up into the candy pink sky where fluffy clouds rose up, shifting shapes as he rolled by beneath them. I mean, in one sentence, by drawing that picture of the sky and clouds, he instantly conveyed a sense of the safety and freedom that was now within Bourne's grasp. 
problem was he was stuck in this little portal on the end of that. <laughs> you had to keep on reading, but I think I made my point. Yeah, my God, you were struggling along with him. You know, that, that's really a terrific example, and I love Ludlum's writing. And yeah. I'm going to give you another kind of mastery with word pictures from an author not well-known like Robert Ludlum. Her name is Joan Del Monte, and this is from her book, Mud Blood. And Del Monte takes the reader into this dim maze of rooms in a county office and she also takes them into a sleazy diner. But she uses her words as though she's dabbing paint on a canvas. And you not only feel it, but you see it. Here's the type of description that you can strive for if you want the reader to be literally immersed in the surroundings. On this next one, as you read, you feel you're actually in this dim labyrinth of rooms, and it becomes real. So besides creating a three-dimensional image, Del Monte has populated the scene with confused people, and that adds to the atmosphere. Here's a passage from that book. The county maintains its records in a maze of rooms off marble corridors of a soaring height, calculated to inspire awe in the citizen. Because the ceiling lights are 30 feet off the floor, and the county economizes by using 40-watt light bulbs, People grope their way up the halls, grasping any passerby for direction. I kept my eyes down to avoid encouraging anyone with a baffled expression. As the story progresses, the protagonist and her com companion enter this sleazy bar diner in the Sacramento Delta country, uh, country. And Del Monte could have easily said something like, once in the room with its low ceiling and wood walls, I ordered a cup of tea to warm me up. Some fishermen at the next table were eating pasta. Well, although that aptly describes the cafe and what's happening nearby, it's just simply too mechanical. Just two so-what sentences strung together. So instead, Del Monte used thoughts and emotions and physical sensations in addition to describing the room. She painted the picture to a point the reader might feel they're actually sitting in the room, immersed in the action. Yeah, that's right. Now, um, weren't you friends with uh, Joan when you lived in Marina Del Rey? Yeah. Actually, when I lived in Marina Del Rey, California, um, Joan and I were both in Sisters in Crime, and that's how I met her. And in fact, I used this very example in a workshop and decided to use it today. Uh, let's see if we're on the same page. No pun intended here. Okay, this is for the listeners. The operative words are sitting in the room. The reader is no longer just reading about it because via the word picture, their imagination has carried them right there into the cafe. She writes, I felt like warming my hands on him. Instead, I warmed my fingers around the mug. The tea smelled of lemon. I let the steam bathe my face. Then I sucked up one searing sip and felt the warmth radiate through my chest. Unlike the bar, the dining room had a low ceiling. The wooden walls were warped with age. At the next rectangular table, a quartet of fishermen had decided the day was too wet and too blowing to get in a boat. They had switched their attention to a mountain of pasta piled between them on large white crockery plates. 
I could smell the tomatoes and the pungent garlic. I salivated over my damn salad. Fred attacked a plate of thick cottage fries with his fingers. Hmm. Um, How about one more from that book? Yeah, yeah. How about another one? Okay. Now, she moves over to describing where this woman lived in a, a rundown building in Mar Vista, California. And she could have said Clarita lived in a rundown building in Mar Vista. And, I mean, that would have told you what it was all about. It told us where she lived, and since the building is run down, it suggests that Clarita probably doesn't have much money. But that would have been where it stopped. So instead, again, Del Monte drew a picture with words. And we realized from the details what it would have been like to actually be there. And I want you to also notice the effect of the two sentences after the physical description of the building and how they added to this picture. Clarita lived in the Mar Vista section, which means sea view in Spanish. But there was no sea view from her apartment near Washington Place and Coolridge Avenue in West Los Angeles. The view out of her living room window was across a scraggly patch of grass to the mirror image apartment 20 feet away. Downstairs, bicycles were propped against the stucco wall of the building, their frames locked to trees. Two women, seated in plastic folding chairs, gossiped on the grass. By completing the scene that way, the reader can envision now more than the building itself. It tells you that children most likely live in the complex because of the bicycles by the tree. It fleshes out the image of run down, and the plastic folding chairs evoke an image of what the women might look like sitting there. Right. Hmm. Um. So why don't you tell us about... Um, Maxwell Alexander Drake. I know you know him, and I know him, and he writes a right. fantasy series. Right. Maxwell Alexander Drake is a writer here in Southern California, and, and you're in California again. Oh man, why do I keep on saying that? I've lived here for ten years. <laughs> hey, listen, I'm Venice dude. Like I told you, you can get the boy out of the beach, but you can't get the beach out of the boy. <laughs> that is so true. When it's so true, I've been uh, looking at it. Too many ocean pictures recently. <laughs> um, We're out here in the desert. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, I'm all Jeff. Friends of mine just bought a, a place up in Newport, Oregon, on the coast, and I'm, I just, uh, I keep on picturing that. And, uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, Maxwell Alexander Drake writes this fantasy series called Genesis of Oblivion Saga which includes farmers and mercenaries, mortar, mortals and deities, and dreams and nightmares. And he's really a master of the word picture. Take this passage, for example. Reaching the doorway to his son's dark room, he peered in. The shutters stood open to allow the cool spring breeze to enter. In the dim light, he made out his son's sleeping form lying on the bed. Waiting for his eyes to adjust to the dimness, he crept like the breath of a mouse into the room. Standing beside the bed, he gazed down at the boy, drinking in the sight. The sandy blonde hair covering the child's head, which matched his own, lay slightly tussled from sleep. The boyishly round appearance of his face, so prevalent in children of his age, the essence of youth, picked out, peeked out just above the silk covers. Clytus knelt down and cupped the boy's face gently in his hands. 
So just reading that, how could you not feel the love the father has for his son? He doesn't have to think or say, I love you, or I love my son, or here's my boy that I love. His actions and the ambience of the room and the sleeping child say it all. Yeah, you know, I I thought we were near the end of the show, but we actually have a few more minutes if we want to talk about this a little bit more. And, you know, I think when people say that they were really so into the book that they felt like they were there, it definitely has to do, as, as we've pointed out, with the writer's skill to draw word pictures. And I think a good exercise is to read some other authors' books, and when you actually feel like that, where you are reading a passage and the image is so very clear in your mind, try to analyze what that author has done to make you feel like that. Because so often, you know, we'll skip past these passages, but then sometimes we just really get grabbed and we're so into it, and we know what that person looks like. We know what the situation is. We know what their uh, emotions are. H- have you felt that, Eric? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and I, think, I think looking at specific passages is a, is a great way to um, illustrate this point and, and how you can do it succinctly. One of my favorite authors is Anne Rice, and, and you know everybody is in love with the vampire Lestat and everything, but one of my uh, favorite of hers was came after the Lestat series, and it was called The Tale of, a Body, of the Body Thief. And about halfway through, I mean, they're, they're, um, it's, a, it's a dinner scene, and I'm just going to read this little passage here. Now, the cold despair did come over me obliterating the anger quite completely, and I stared listlessly at the plate before me, at the half-empty restaurant with its shining silver and napkins folded at so many empty places like little hats. I looked beyond to the muted lights of the lobby with that awful gloom closing upon everything, and then I looked at David, who for all of his character, his sympathy, and his charm was not the marvelous being he would have been to me with my vampire eyes, but only another mortal, frail and living on the edge of death, as I did. I mean... Wonderful passage. Yeah, you can just feel you're sitting at this empty restaurant having this this conversation with this person that you don't know whether you're going to eat or love, <laughs> but it, it's just, it's very evocative, and it's and it's it sets the scene for a, a, a four pages of discussion. I'm sorry, two and a half pages of discussion between them, and then you you see how these characters are interacting. So she set the scene for her characters, and then let them live in that scene. Yeah, I particularly like the. I particularly like the napkins folded like little hats and the exactly. the empty places at the table because that you know that drew a picture for me. I mean, I could picture right. what this would gloomy, look like. Right, the gloomy yeah. lights of the lobby, you get a picture of looking sort of off into the distance and you can see those muted lights of the lobby sort of seeping through the entrance to the restaurant. We've all been in restaurants like that and we put you know, we paint it with our own 
eyes and memories, but that's what she did such a great job of, of, of doing. And again, very yeah. succinctly, didn't slow down the action, and she matched the gloom of that restaurant with sort of the, the in-betweenness that her character was feeling at the time. She was like, am I in, am I in love? Am I hungry? <laughs> you know, and, and that empathy draws us closer and closer to the character. So I, I think looking at examples like that are um, very positive. And maybe down the road what we could do is, is look at some that don't work so well where maybe the author gets lost in too much detail. Where you know, that's what I was going to suggest is that as much as we've given some wonderful examples of drawing word pictures, I think it would be interesting. We're, we're just about running out of time now, but I think it would be interesting to be able to discuss some poor examples and how those could have been improved. And that would be when it would be wonderful if we would have some people calling in and giving us their opinions on, you know, short opinions on what they didn't like about it. Because as much as you need to know what you do want to aim for, you also need to know what you want to avoid. And with that comment, I'm going to tell you that our next show is August 12th. And Dennis Griffin will be back with us then. And the topics will be reviews and what if you get a bad one. And you know that kind of ties right into what I just said because if you've got a book filled with bad descriptions and boring things, the odds are you're going to get a bad review. <laughs> right. Or you could, you know, even on the other side of that, you can have a book that's filled with flowery, beautiful descriptions and metaphors and similes all over the place and the reader gets to the end of it and goes well who cares you know that was well, just i might have i might as well picked up a book of poetry because i didn't care about that's a great point yeah that's a great point i i can't remember the name of the book you know when when you don't like a book you usually don't remember the I name know, that right, well um right. but there was one book that i read where Every other page had either a metaphor or a simile on it. It was, right. this did this like that, and this did this like that, and this was almost like this, and this did this like that. And finally, I got to a point in the middle of the book where I said, I've had it, enough. Yeah. And yeah. I closed the book and didn't finish it. Right. That's the other thing. You were talking about your tab three and like me with my Kindle reader. It's like when, you, when you find a book like that, you're less likely to throw it across the room because you've got a <laughs> <laughs> in your so it's, I guess it's a little simpler to just click delete. But, uh, <laughs> I haven't found how to delete books. these books. I've got so many books on my um, Kindle app, on my phone and on my Tab 3, and I can't figure out how to delete them. That's going to be one of my next oh, things. I, of course, a lot of them I like to keep on there for reference, but right, um, some right. definitely deserve a delete. Yeah, well, if you keep them on the cloud, you can you can delete them up there. And there is there is sort of a cathartic, I, I miss that sometimes that cathartic uh, feeling of of throwing a, a book that's not working across. The <laughs> maybe that's just me. Yeah, but I don't miss having the book fall on my face. <laughs> like no, I said, was, I have to preserve evocative. my nose. <laughs> exactly, See, that was very evocative right there. Yeah. 
So, uh, <laughs> anyway, um, yep, you can find me at morganstjames-author.com. That's M-O-R-G-A-N-S-T-J-A-M-E-S-Author. And you can find Eric at Eric James Miller, E-R-I-C-J-A-M-E-S-M-I-L-L-E-R.com. And last yeah, but not least, oh, okay. VeniceDude.com is still my, my primary. Oh, okay. Venice Beach, so it's VeniceDude.com. I know and you've been in California mind. this whole show. <laughs> I know. My mind is, uh, I don't know, it got cloudy here and it got cloudy here in Las Vegas, so I, I, it's unusual <laughs> to see clouds in July. True, true. And I want to say that last but not least, please visit Writers of Southern Nevada at nevadawriters.org. Eric is president of this organization, and I'm on the board. And Southern Nevada Writers is sponsoring this show. Uh, We're also forming an alliance with coldcoffeecafe.com, so visit their website as well. And we will see you back again on August 12th. Okay. All right. Thank you and good night. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.